0: I would be scared for my life. I would be probably depressed. They are wanting to reopen right now. They want to be a part of phase two, and they don't want to wait um, to reopen in phase three. Well, certainly these facilities are not things that we would wish
1: on
2: our own children.
1: As the public continues to social distance and wear masks, the biggest outbreaks of coronavirus have been centered in places like nursing homes, meatpacking plants, and prisons. That includes juvenile detention facilities, where at least 285 child inmates have been infected across the country. Welcome, this is the ABC 10 News Coronavirus Impact Podcast, where we examine how the virus is affecting our communities. I'm 10 News reporter Matt Boone, filling in for Ben Higgins. It's Tuesday, May 12th. I have two in-depth interviews later in the podcast about the outbreak of coronavirus in prisons and juvenile facilities, but first, the latest on the numbers here in San Diego County. 96 new cases were reported today, bringing our total to 5,161, and 15 new deaths were reported today, bringing that total to 190. Today, we learned fall semester at San Diego State University and Cal State San Marcos will likely be completely online. According to the Union-Tribune, the entire CSU system will have very limited exceptions for classroom learning starting in the fall. Today, Dr. Anthony Fauci said treatments and vaccines probably won't be widely available in time for the fall semester. SDSU transitioned to online learning last month. But there has been some good news. San Diego County leaders gave the green light today for more businesses throughout the region to reopen. Speaking at the county news conference, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher said malls are allowed to reopen for pickup and delivery, but no in-person shopping will be allowed yet. Car washes, landscaping and gardening businesses, pet grooming and outdoor museums and gathering spaces are also allowed to reopen. New guidelines were also released today for restaurants to begin preparing for in-person service, though that won't happen quite yet nail and hair salons also remain closed for now. For more on that and where we are in phase two, I'd like to welcome 10 news reporter Mimi Alcala to the podcast. Welcome Mimi.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Matt.
1: So Mimi, you've been um talking today, I know, with a lot of people involved in the salon and hair and nail industry about where they fit into all of this but from your perspective and, and the latest that you know today where are we in phase two and you know where do we have to get before we move into phase three
0: okay so californians as you know we've been staying home for almost two months now and this is flattening the curve uh we recently moved into stage two of reopening which allows for lower risk businesses to operate with a lot of restrictions and modifications like um, curbside pickup and delivery. And that included retailers like flower shops, toy stores, uh, clothing stores, things like that. So the next step is phase three, and that's going to be more of the businesses that are considered higher risk, like hair salons and barbershops. So right now, a lot of hairstylists are confused and frustrated by this high-risk category. Um, They say their industry is already state-mandated to uphold certain health and safety laws. Uh, So They learn about disease prevention and sanitation, things like that. So many feel that they're prepared to reopen right now as part of phase two rather than waiting until phase three, whenever that may come.
1: I remember listening to the governor's press conference last week when he revealed that the first case of community spread of COVID-19 in California had been traced back to a nail salon. And after that, it sounded like there was a lot of pushback from the salon industry which sounds like that has kind of uh, bubbled even more into the fore in the form of a lawsuit. Can you tell me more about that? There was something filed today?
0: Yeah, it was. So a lawsuit over the stay-at-home order and reopening was filed against the governor and other California officials this morning by several groups, and one of those groups included the Professional Beauty Federation of California And they represent about half a million members in the beauty industry here in California. So they say the governor himself has already said we have successfully bent and arguably flattened the curve. And then the lawsuit claims that by his own admission, the basis for the stay-at-home order is now resolved and should be regarded as null and void. So they are wanting to reopen right now. They want to be a part of phase two, and they don't want to wait um, to reopen in phase three.
1: On Twitter and online and and stuff, there's been a lot of memes about the coronavirus. Of course, one of them is, uh, you know, now that kids are having to do all their schooling from home, there's memes about how parents have never appreciated their teachers as much as now. Same thing with hair you know people are doing each other's hair and joking about how nobody's appreciated their barber or hairstylist more than now that we've gone two months without them so obviously people are clamoring for that but at the same time it sounds like you've talked to um some of the actual business owners many of these are just you know single person businesses um how has it affected people's businesses and livelihoods to not be able to use their trade like this
0: Yeah, so I spoke with a local hair salon owner. She's had her business for 13 years. Her and her husband are both hairstylists, and this is their livelihood. And um, she's saying she's now very stressed out with the unknown future after having no income for two months, doesn't know what she's going to do with her employees. She's just kind of at this point where she's just stuck. So she's actually also involved in the lawsuit, and she's demanding... For the choice to reopen with restrictions of course if they choose to Uh, but in the meantime she's ordered a lot of protective gear since the stay-at-home order actually went into place she started ordering things and making sure everything is safe and she's um, currently installing some plexiglass in between the stations for when she is allowed to reopen so she is just preparing and she tells me that um her salon would operate at less than half the capacity normally operates at if she is allowed to reopen and Although there's still no clear answers as to what exactly how they're able to cut someone's hair from six feet apart is obviously not going to work. So uh, as far as safety precautions, she says, you know, there's still no clear guidelines or clear answers for them. But she's willing to do whatever it takes to keep, you know, her clients safe and still be able to operate her business and make a living. And so she's just waiting for that and really hoping to at least have the choice to reopen.
1: All right, well, we're all looking forward to that time when we can get our hair done again. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you so much. Also closed at this point by state guidelines are gyms, though they are gearing up to resume modified service as soon as they can as well. Working on a story about that today is 10 News anchor, Lindsay Pena. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay.
3: Hello, it's nice to be here, Matt. This is my first time on the
1: podcast. Well, welcome. I'm glad to have you. So we're still looking forward to phase three, but I know gyms are pretty eager to start uh, moving forward, or at least prepping for this, and you talked to some gym owners today. What's kind of the status right now, and how are they dealing with trying to get ready to reopen?
3: Yeah. uh, Like you said, everybody is is really eager uh, to to get things open and back again, but kind of trying to figure out at this point how that new normal looks and what they're going to do to reassure people that it's safe to come back to the gym. Um, We spoke to the owner of a a smaller gym that's in North Park here. They've owned it for about 20 years. And uh, it's called The Last Real Gym. And, you know, they closed March 15th, right when, The stay-at-home order was issued and have been struggling um, as a small business owner to, you know, stay afloat during this time without any income. Um, But they basically just told me that they're, you know, kind of redesigning the gym. That was one of the things they mentioned, positioning equipment far enough away so, you know, folks don't have to think about social distancing. It's just kind of done for them Um, having hand sanitizing stations all over the place um, making sure that they hire more staff to clean all the equipment in between when people use them and one of the interesting things i thought they brought up was actually scheduling your gym time now. So instead of just, you know, scheduling that class that you might want to take, you're going to have to probably say, I'm going to work out from one to two today, and that's going to be your time. So they can effectively stagger, uh, you know, people's workouts and make sure that they're not cramming too many people in at one time. Um, mm-hmm. And then I also talked to the folks over at 24 Hour Fitness, um, which is you know one of the largest chains in the country, and especially here in California. They told me they have more than 50% of their locations just here in California. So um, they're also looking at you know, what their plans are going to be for reopening. Some of those things uh, they said would include uh, touch-free check-ins so you don't have to, you know, come in contact with anything when you come in. They're spacing out their equipment, like I mentioned before, and their policy, at least right now, at um, some of their clubs have started reopening in the Dallas area, which has given um, the AOK to, to reopen for businesses like gyms there. And they're opening for one hour at a time, and then they'll close for thirty minutes, so staff can do a thorough cleaning, and then they reopen back up. Oh. So that's you know just kind of some of the things I guess that I learned today as to you know what gyms are planning to do to make sure things are sanitary and clean.
1: Here in California, obviously the question is when will we get to phase three? There's obviously a lot of public health uh, metrics that the governor has made clear we want to get to before we we get to that point. Um, But at the same time, we have seen some gyms, even here locally, try and reopen ahead of those guidelines. Um, From your reporting and and your understanding of all this, what are the kind of the public health concerns about opening gyms? And in addition to some of those measures you mentioned about spacing people out and uh, cleaning, how do you think gyms will just be able to convince people to come back to these spaces?
3: I, I think that's the, the big question right now. I mean, from everything uh, I think we've been able to figure out about this virus, it seems that a lot of the concern centers around how long it can survive on hard surfaces. And I think the big question around gyms is you've got you know all sorts of different people coming in and touching surfaces and. You know, they're, they're working out, they're sweaty, they're coughing, they're, you know, just there's lots of variables there. And I think that that's why they've been included in these later phases is we're still trying to figure out how to make sure that, that all these surfaces are effectively sanitized in between uses. And... That I mean, I, I think just from talking to only two gyms, it, it seems like it's going to depend on, you know, each individual policy and just whether the customer feels comfortable. If they come in and see, you know, policies implemented that make them feel safe, then I, I think that's going to allow them to resume their workouts but at this point I mean I think it's it's still kind of learning as we go and you know today just as an example we saw um, some more guidance on restaurants and I think that maybe as we get further into this there might be some further guidance um, from the government or from health officials about you know how gyms should proceed and what you know certain things should be in place at the very least to make sure that people are safe and staff is safe and there's not an outbreak anywhere
1: yeah well i for one i'm kind of excited for when they reopen quarantine bot is a real thing
3: <laughs> uh yes i think we're all becoming very familiar with it, especially in the summertime when you would normally uh want to put on your swimsuit so
1: <laughs> yeah well, looking forward to those changes coming all right thank you for the update Lindsay.
3: no problem thank you matt
1: Well, as local governments grapple with how to resume to a more normal life and economy, one of the bigger questions that's been hard to solve is how to slow the spread of the virus in contained spaces, like nursing homes and prisons. Prisons in particular have posed a challenge, not just in protecting inmates, but the employees as well. In California's prison system, there have been 531 confirmed cases, according to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 431 of those are considered still active. Five inmates have died from the virus, all from the same prison, the California Institution for Men in Chino in San Bernardino County. And while that's still a small percentage of the overall prison population of more than 100,000 inmates, it has also spread to the employees. So far, 184 employees have tested positive, 104 have gone back to work, they're okay now, but about 80 cases remain active joining us now to talk more about this is philip melendez with restore justice thanks for joining us thanks for having me so before we go too far just give me a little bit of background about your organization and what you guys are doing in response to the coronavirus
4: um yeah as far as our organization goes uh one of our main lines is uh from proximity to policy we do policy work around uh criminal justice reform sentencing reform uh, previously, before the pandemic hit, we were doing programs inside of prisons. Uh, we were bringing survivors of crime inside who have lost loved ones to violence and uh, bringing them in to sit down with incarcerated people who have committed uh, murder and uh, horrible crimes and having a dialogue in front of district attorneys, lawmakers and really seeing what the needs of each are and trying to bring, uh, as we say, a proximity to the situation, bring people uh, who are closest to the problem, who usually have the best solutions uh, into the rooms with uh, decision-makers and people who, uh, who hold power within the state. Um, since uh, we've been locked down, we can't go inside of prisons. They've been put uh, on lockdown, no volunteer programs, no visitation. And so what we've been doing, we've switched our focus somewhat uh, we still do uh, as much correspondence with the folks inside as we can as far as programming goes because we do realize the importance of uh, self-help, rehabilitative programs, uh, not just for credit earning but just for uh, growth and eventual success upon release. So we do maintain some of that. Uh, we've also been recently pairing uh, or teaming up with another organization called Initiate Justice, and together I forget the actual numbers of uh uh, amount of dollars that we raised and what we did is we bought a whole bunch of PPE uh, masks and uh, different supplies for the folks inside and we delivered them to the prisons that were hit the hardest. I think one was uh, uh, Chino, uh California mm-hmm. Institute for men and uh, there's one in uh, San Diego that it initiated justice did uh, a drop-off to. We also did one for Lancaster also hit hard, and so that's part of our focus um, right now as you know the needs for the people incarcerated have shifted
1: going more into that what do you think that the state can do to better protect the inmates and the employees there from getting infected
4: <laughs> well you know it, as they always say what's good for the goose is good for the gander," and one of the things that we always hear is testing like testing 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 um previously in, inside of prisons even with uh, all the visitors and the volunteers barred from going in you still had I don't know how many thousands of press officers and staff going in and out of the prison. And a friend of mine, who's uh, uh, locked up in Chevrolet he actually said, you know, uh, we definitely need masks. We definitely need more soap, um, but they need to test the COs. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's hard for people to get tested around here, even, you know, in the free world um, and for the folks inside, not just for the uh, incarcerated people, but the, the COs, because it's all, it's all connected, we're all connected in, in that uh, it becomes an incubator inside, uh, more incarcerated people get infected, then um, they come in contact with more correctional staff, medical staff, anybody who's going in and out of the prison. Those people come home and you know connect with their families. Uh, and those people go on and connect with more people outside of that community. So it's, um, it's a fallacy to think that we are not all connected in this work or in this situation and that the incubators are contained because they're definitely not. Um, so I definitely would like to see some testing stepped up for, uh, staff going in and out. Uh, previously it was just a verbal, uh, check. Like, are you okay? <laughs> which is, uh, now kind of crazy looking back at the asymptomatic, um, uh, effects of the virus. So there's that testing, but also for the folks inside, I remember being, um, you know being inside and knowing what the dress code was you know there were no clothes with hoods no uh definitely no face coverings if you had a handkerchief it was uh you know only for dabbing your sweat off of your forehead and if you wore it around your face like a mask uh, you know they they would deem that as a security threat somehow. and so um fortunately some places are allowing masks now um but i wish it would have a lot more masks definitely more testing uh, and then also uh, I remember the porters, which are the people that work inside, the uh, incarcerated people that work on cleaning up the buildings and the common areas, they don't have like hazardous materials Here They give them some bleach and some uh, some watered-down bleach to water it down disinfectant. And they say, here you go, keep us safe. And, uh, you know, there's no real uh, medical training. There's some meticulousness that I've learned. While I was incarcerated, I took a janitorial class which also had a segment on, you know, handling bloodborne pathogens and and got certified in cleaning up uh, actual ERs after the uh, surgery. And so, um, you know, that type of training is what's necessary, but people just aren't getting that. And so uh, they're kind of left to fend for themselves. They don't have uh, as up-to-date, as fast information as we have. Definitely would like to see more um, just info be made available to them. And one thing that I've been noticing lately too is I feel like the just the the culture inside inside of c d c r is always to uh deny or sweep things under the rug uh, maybe under report and i'm I'm not saying that this is a founded uh claim <laughs> and I, but I just feel like uh from my experience uh, when it comes to um the way that c c r operates from the top down, there's not a lot of transparency so there's not a lot of oversight and so um I wish we would have more media coverage of what's really going on inside because, you know, as our organization says, you know, it's from proximity to policy and proximity is so important, but when you take, you know, the humanity out of incarcerated people and you're shown images on TV of orange pants or, uh, you know, some guys working out on the yard and, and just talk about crimes and their humanity is so much denied and also that is uh, something that allows you to disregard their, their well-being and, you know, they're, humans. they're human beings inside who've made uh, little mistakes and huge mistakes and horrible decisions. Um, at the same time, it's not to say that, you know, we as a society should be able to judge them and say, hey, we're just gonna leave you for dead because that's what it kind of feels like right now. I mean, they, left, uh, they let out 3,500 uh, incarcerated people and those are the low level nonviolent people mm-hmm. in the beginning of the pandemic. And since then, all I've seen is a stoppage from um, letting county jail inmates. Uh, they're, they're closed. CDR has been closed for intake, and so um, that somewhat reduces the population. Just from on regular people uh, who are scheduled to get out, getting out, which is just not enough. Um, I just read recently, San Francisco County's uh, jail is operating at 50% capacity, and so I just look at that as something that needs to be done. That that release that free them all hashtag let them go all of these things that's the only way that can really address the spread uh inside and also um what that spread does to the outside community
1: so you think one of the things that should be done is to continue releasing prisoners to reduce overcrowding and potentially reduce the risk of infection
4: absolutely um so because in california that 3500 that was for one a drop in the bucket and two it totally disregards um Stats and figures on public safety. And, and what I'm talking about is just lifers in general. Um, I've seen different reports where life have a recidivism rate from uh, less than 1% to, I think, 13%. And that varies based on uh, different different stats than from different uh, researchers. But that is still pales in comparison to the people that are considered nonviolent, who, you know, have drug offenses, who, uh, who compile 60% of recidivism rates. And so, uh, just on my experience too, with all the lives that I've seen, there's a, um, a whole process that we have to go through. Um, you know, a whole rehabilitative process, a whole parole board, um, I don't know what you call it, the (laughs) battle, um, to show that you're suitable for parole. And, um, once we go through this process you know we come home you know people that have extreme connection to the community have extreme connection to the harm that we've caused and we acknowledge it we're accountable uh, we're trying to do everything that we can to you know sometimes in some cases we can't put back or try to fix what we've done but what we do is uh, we live our lives restoratively we make uh, a living amends we um uh, we just don't go back and we don't commit more horrible crimes. And so if you really want to let people out, like, really look at who's, who's, who's really safe. And I think that the data and, and all the research will say that lifers are way more safe, the released by a lot of percent than other um, incarcerated people.
1: Over the past few years, especially under the tenure of Governor Jerry Brown, California has implemented some fairly large criminal justice reforms. Um, the CDCR says that they are working to try and becoming more of a rehabilitative agency rather than punitive. Um, but what do you think that this coronavirus outbreak is going to do, uh, especially for agencies like yours that are trying to push for even more reforms? Do you think this has shed light on maybe more shortfalls within the state's jail and prison system?
4: Honestly, um, so what I've been noticing is just all over social media, People like really being scared and it has lit a fire under the people, all the the nonprofit organizations that work on criminal justice reform and abolition and uh, sentencing reform. It's lit a huge fire under them. I've seen uh, intensity that I have not seen in a long time. Well, actually, ever, I don't think, because you know I was incarcerated until 2017, and there were movements to help me come home, but I didn't get to see what that looked like. But I'm sure people fought really hard, and I definitely don't discount that. But uh, this virus and the knowledge of, of prisons being incubators, the knowledge of uh, the inability to social distance has put people on high alert. And so I've seen so many more advocates. I've seen so much more messages going to the governor, you know, let them go, uh, hashtag freedom all. Um, Yeah, people are are really, really pumped up about it, and I'm really glad to see it. Uh, And then also, too, uh, on on the other hand, to your point, is that, yes, this is something that will, um, it has, it has definitely exposed shortcomings of the CDCR. Uh, You know, in 2009, there was that court order, to reduce the population to, uh, I think it was 130%. At the time it was like 165%. And based on that number, the whole entire state of California's prison system was unable to meet a constitutional standard of of medical care for incarcerated people. And so based on that, they had to let some people go. And they did. And they got down to about, uh, I think right now, about 129% capacity. And so yeah, I mean, they're repurposing visiting rooms since they're not in use right now. Uh, they're opening gymnasiums and trying to uh, make space, and they're doing a lot. And what they're doing is kind of like scrambling. It's, it's more uh, of a reaction versus a, a planned response. And so it's definitely exposing a lack of preparedness to to deal with this, and, and it's exposing the fact that with this lack of preparedness, the whole system uh, of City jails and county jails is... Um, is really, really lacking in uh, a prepared response and also just the ability to provide constitutional uh, medical care for anybody. And so I, I actually was thinking the other day, like how how soon is it gonna be or how, what's it gonna take to really look at the 8th Amendment and the, and the Constitution uh, saying that, you know, punishment will not be uh, cruel as usual. Like this is pretty cruel. Um, watching people die, and you know, watching COs not care about you, watching medical staff be indifferent, um, you know, it's sad and it's scary. Watching the news and seeing, you know, this is happening outside. There is widespread panic, and you know, your your bunkmate might have the virus, but you're going to be forced to sit, sit there um, with this person as they're coughing in a. Uh, was it five by nine cell at San Quentin? They're a little bigger in other prisons, but still, it's st- still impossible to social distance. So, um, yeah, hopefully, this the fight stays with the people after the virus is, you know, contained. But also to um, keep in mind what's what's really happening. Keep in mind of the cruel and unusual um, conditions that that are prevalent in just about every prison in California.
1: You mentioned you'd been incarcerated how do you think you'd be reacting to this if you were still behind bars with all this going on right now?
4: Yeah, I would be scared for my life. I would be probably depressed, you know, just thinking about my family and my loved ones and who, who is scared to death for me. Um, it would be really sad. And I've seen pandemics. I've lived through an outbreak of Legionnaires disease of San Quentin, uh, norovirus, uh, bird flu, swine flu. I think I had swine flu one time while I was at a at a prison in Vacaville in and I remember sweating it out, uh, shivering in my cell, by myself. Fortunately, it was a single cell. Um, not all prisons are like that or built that way, but this one was. And um, I remember just thinking like, I hope I don't die. Um, you know, it, 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 I felt really achy and I was really scared. Uh, and finally I woke up and was happy that, okay, I feel like my fever broke, I'm not as achy, and I don't think I'm gonna die. But I had a lingering cough, and uh, based on that, I just said, hey, uh, medical staff, can I get some throat lozenges, you know, when it was pill distribution time? And uh, they were like, uh, what's wrong with you? I was like, I got a scratchy throat. What else? I was like, that's about it now. And they were like, what do you mean now? Well, uh, I had a fever, I felt like, and shivers, and they were like, "Uh uh-oh. Let's test you. And I'll, my fever was still just a little high and they were like, you know what? We're gonna put you in the hole uh, for observation. And so um, fortunately at that time, like I said, my fever had broken, I started feeling better, but uh, I still had to go to solitary confinement. And this is the same solitary confinement that people who break the rules and, you know, who are getting fights or, or troublemakers, quote unquote, uh, you know, they put them there and I'm subject to the same disciplinary action as if I had, you know, committed a crime inside of prison. And so, uh, uh, yeah, just thinking back on my experience with it, uh, that flu was pretty bad, and this flu is really worse. And so, you know, I don't know how much you would multiply my fear by it, but it'd be a very high amount. And I am sure I'd be freaking out. I'd probably be feeling despair, um, you know, if if I try to cover my face with a T-shirt and an officer comes by myself, you know, for account time and says, hey, take that off. You know, I have no choice but to take it off or suffer some consequences. And so uh, I can only imagine, you know, the folks inside right now feeling a huge sense of despair, um, feeling a huge sense of confusion. You know, so many conflicting reports, so much false information about what's, you know, a cure, what's not a cure. Is there going to be a cure? When? Um, How to, you know, prevent it. Do the cloth masks work? Uh, You know, there's so much that, you know, they don't know. And uh, Honestly, I'd probably be confused, scared depressed um
1: yeah that's something i didn't think about that the restriction of information getting to the inmates definitely could have an impact on on how they view everything that's going on
4: yeah and and also too this prison medical staff i mean and the whole medical system in my experience is not set up for crisis uh it's i mean it's set up for uh triage in some cases uh a quick nurse check but if there's something that's serious that happens you know whether it's the coronavirus whether it's a uh, stabbing that needs to be done you go to an outside prison and so like just, it's not the prison is just not set up in a way that is um, conducive for medical treatment in, in, in any meaningful way
1: well thanks Phil for your time anything else that you wanted to add?
4: Yeah, go ahead and do it I mean you know like I said they don't have a voice that needs to be amplified they need to have their humanity restored uh, and I you know I was there I've been there done that uh and I'm a human being, uh, you know, doing the same things that I had mentioned of other folks and you know, living restoratively restoratively, restorative, making my living amends. And uh it's my like duty, you know, to reach back and, and really, you know, bring that experience to life for people and show that there is something beyond, you know, horrible crimes, horrible decisions. There is uh, you know, opportunity and possibility for people to change and based on that you should not let them die in prison because
1: of the coronavirus Phil Melendez he's the program manager for restore justice thanks for joining us Phil thank you and it's not just adult facilities juvenile detention centers have also had outbreaks for more on this I'm joined by Joshua Rovner a senior advocacy associate with the sentencing project welcome to the podcast Josh Thanks for having me. So in your work with the Sentencing Project, you've been following the outbreak in juvenile facilities specifically. Tell me a little bit about that and what you've been learning so far.
2: Well, I've been tracking the presence of COVID-19 in juvenile facilities going back uh, two months now. Uh, The best that I can do is track the data that are publicly reported. And we also only know about the number of cases when kids actually get tested. So to this point, I'm aware of 285 kids in 23 states in the District of Columbia who are in these facilities who've come down with COVID-19 and uh, 443 staff members in 29 states. And in both cases, there's kids and staff in California facilities who've been diagnosed positive.
1: So there's actually more staff that's been affected than the juveniles themselves?
2: Yeah, uh, so there's more staff, uh, I think that reflects Probably more widespread testing of them than widespread testing of kids. Uh, I know that in New Jersey, for example, they've started testing every last kid who's in one of their facilities. Uh, That is in no way typical. Uh, I think that, generally speaking, there's been more testing of the staff than of the kids.
1: And why do you think that is? Why is there such a disparity?
2: I don't have a great answer for why that would be. Uh, I think that what we're seeing is the same... Lack of testing that's happening outside of the walls of these facilities is also happening inside of the facilities. This country does not have a great grasp of where COVID is and how it's spreading. And my job has been to track its presence in the juvenile facilities and having the same problem that the rest of the country is having.
1: Within the prison system, we've heard, obviously, there's close quarters. Uh, there's been complaints about lack of sanitation. What do you see as the biggest challenges at containing this outbreak and why it's spreading so much within these facilities?
2: Well, certainly, these facilities are not things that we would wish on our own children if they made the kind of mistakes that, that land kids into the juvenile justice system. Uh, as you said, social distancing while incarcerated is it's nearly impossible. These are congregate care settings. The kids sleep together they they eat together they are in close proximity almost all the time uh unless they are being isolated from each other Uh, as far as the quality of the um the sanitation i think that's going to be different by facility and it's certainly something that the public ought to be concerned about making sure the kids but all circumstances, not whether there's a pandemic on or not, but whether kids have access to the things they need to live healthy, successful lives. And that obviously includes soap.
1: So what more can be done in these facilities to help slow or stop the spread? Well, listen,
2: the most obvious solution is to let these kids go home. I mean, you are looking at a juvenile justice system in this country that generally locks up kids uh, who have not been accused of or convicted of what anyone would consider to be serious crimes. 70% of the kids in these facilities are there on nonviolent offenses. Uh, we have a huge number of kids who are there because they violated the terms of their probation. Kids who are there on drug charges or property crimes. These are all certainly serious things that you need an in adult intervention to get a kid back on the right track. But getting the kids out of these facilities has always been a priority for our organization. And in fact, we've certainly seen state-level officials Looking to limit admissions and looking to allow more kids to go home. So, there's been successes in states, um, Illinois and Kansas, and states just all over the country, Maryland, Georgia, have seen far fewer kids in their facilities, partly as a response to the pandemic and partly uh, the residue of the pandemic, which is that crime is dropping, there's fewer arrests happening, and thus there's fewer admissions to these facilities. Uh, So we've been successful convincing state leaders to allow more kids to go home, to not admit more kids, but there is still so very much to do to make sure that all of the kids who are in the facilities today are
1: safe. Are there some states that have been doing this better than others, or do we not really know given the status of testing?
2: I think that's a tough question to answer, because the fact is, is that where we see a lot of cases, that's evidence of a lot of testing taking place. So there have been outbreaks in three different large facilities in the state of Ohio. And we only know about that because they're testing enough kids to find that to be the case. For a long, On the other hand, for a very long time, we didn't know any kids in the state of Indiana who had tested positive. Just today, I learned that there's 11 kids in one of their juvenile prisons who tested positive. They found 11 kids because they tested 11 kids for coronavirus at the Pendleton facility in Indiana. It says to me that they're doing something, but it's not nearly widespread enough if you're hitting 100% on your test results, given that we all know how how many people have this disease without any symptoms whatsoever. Um, so unless there's widespread testing, we're never going to have a good sense of how present The virus
1: is in these facilities. Right. That's the issue inside prisons and outside of them is that people who don't know that they have the virus can still spread it. Um, But generally, what do you see is the broader health implications of this virus spreading within these juvenile facilities?
2: Well, first, you know, we do worry about their health directly. Uh, It does not appear to be as deadly a disease for adolescents as it does for older people. But in many cases, these kids are medically vulnerable. They face problems, uh, immune suppression, obesity, diabetes. Uh, These are things that put someone at greater risk uh, of having serious complications from the virus. And there's a study that just came out today showing how for uh, children, adolescents, emerging adults, that uh, it is certainly dangerous for people who face those challenges to begin with. The other thing that that we and all of us need to be very concerned about is that a common response to positive tests has been to put kids into medical isolation. It's not clear to me, not being inside of these facilities, what the difference is between a medical isolation and what might be considered solitary confinement. There is overwhelming evidence uh, that solitary confinement is an incredibly damaging thing to do the kids, it leads to depression, anxiety, uh, half the kids in in facilities who commit suicide, do so while on solitary confinement. And so if the response to a positive test is to put a kid in a form of quarantine or medical isolation that from the kid's perspective looks just like the kind of solitary confinement that's been banned in a lot of places, then there's going to be a, a horrible impact from that uh, the, the mental health impact of putting kids in isolation like
1: that. Right. It sounds like that's a similar issue in prisons for adults as well. They're just not set up like a hospital does. So, for isolation, that seems to be one of the solutions that they resort to.
2: Yeah. You know, a medical isolation can certainly involve uh, a kid having access, more access than he would usually have to, you know, contact with family. So, like, send calls to family whenever he or she wants, Uh, access to mental health professionals, uh, ability to get outside and exercise. I mean, all of us are going a little stir-crazy under the current emergency. But for kids in these facilities, they are terrified. Uh, This is not something they've dealt with before either. And to make sure that they're given more support, not less, after they've tested positive, is going to be the most important response that we can give them, assuming that the decision has been made not to allow them
1: to go home. Joshua Rovner with The Sentencing Project. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's it for the ABC 10 News Coronavirus Impact Podcast. I'm Matt Boone, in for Ben Higgins. For constant updates on the coronavirus, visit our website, 10news.com.